0: Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. It's been a while since I shared any material uh, through the holidays and uh, just the turn of the year. Time got away with me, but I'm excited to be back uh, for this episode. I have a special guest today, Hamish Ander. Hamish is joining me 18 hours from the future. He's in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm here in the middle part of the U.S. And through the joys of Uh, Modern Technology. I have the pleasure of speaking with this emerging composer and really, really talented artist. I know you'll enjoy hearing more about his experience, and we'll be sharing some music of his. So without further ado, Hamish, welcome to the Anachronism Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Gustav. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh,
0: The pleasure's mine, and I've been looking forward to learning more about you. And uh, as I love to do with guests, moving beyond the simply biographical, which can be a bit prosaic. And the real artist journey is on the inside, not always on the outside. And so that's what we're gonna talk about is uh, your interaction with classical music and other forms of music. And just to frame up for uh, listeners, Talk a little bit about your work in music. You you have two hats and two areas you work in, and give us a flyover of those, and then uh, I'll probably dive into some questions as we go.
1: Well, that's a very um, good way of putting it, Gustav. I do indeed have two hats, and I think um, quite by accident as well, it would seem that these... Um, Two hats, for me, sort of fall in both the classical concert world and and sort of the emerging technological world of mock-ups, which is how you probably best know me through our, you know, collaborations recently. But, um, yeah, so my training was essentially a classical one. I sort of grew up um, analysing scores, um, writing scores, working with notation, um, studying concert recordings, all of this sort of thing. And I think it was only about four years ago that I sort of realized that there was this whole other industry that was running tangential to the um, modern classical worlds that basically allowed composers like myself and um, many, many others to um, basically create, produce their own music digitally. And um, that's been a very exciting journey as well. And one that's probably more in its infancy than me than the um the sort of I guess composition aspect alone, but um very exciting, very very excited to talk about both of those today with you.
0: So my podcast really explores the genre and of classical music, and classical music is a term that I um I've learned to make my piece with, but I've never loved because it it precisely or in its technical sense defines a very uh... narrow period of uh... maybe a couple of decades in europe in the early part of the late part of the seventeen hundreds early eighteen hundreds and classical music is used more broadly to mean european instrumental tradition or european um, art music tradition i think but suffice it to say if you grow up in the modern world You may never encounter that music, or if you do, it might be through commercials or other uh, commercial use that that are simply peripheral to how the music was intended to be enjoyed for its own purpose. And I love to understand from guests how it is they found themselves in this... odd little nook of our very broad media landscape that we live in, a world of all kinds of offerings. And what was it? How did you land in classical music? And you mentioned some training. So tell us a bit about how you found your way into classical music.
1: That's a very good question, Gustav. And I think for a lot of people in my generation, and your generation alike, I think um, we were lucky enough to grow up in an age of cinema and an age of film of TV. And, uh, for me, it was the music of composers like John Williams that basically, um, cemented this, this, you know, inseparable idea of the orchestra in terms of its relevance in uh, modern music. And, um, I've, I guess I've always been very interested in, in, um, what the orchestra can say, I guess, expressively, thematically, all these sorts of things and how it can sort of give us a sense of place and time and, um, and you know, outside of, this, outside of films as well, um, how it can evoke emotion in a concert setting. And so for me, that was probably my introduction into classical music was through scores like Harry Potter, Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones.
0: So were you studying a musical instrument as a young child?
1: Quite a lot later, actually. I started um, a lot later than a lot of um, my contemporaries. I started playing trumpet when I would have been about 13, 14. So that was sort of my first formal introduction to um, learning an instrument. And it wouldn't have been until I was about 17, 18 that I, I guess, properly started to transition into the thought processes of like of a composer that was my beginnings was actually playing in brass band and of course they played John Williams uh arrangements of his famous tunes in our local band which was quite exciting as well so there was that ever-present sort of you know um reminder that um orchestral music is present it's around us it's um something that people recognize and um it was definitely something that that excited me throughout my development.
0: So if you're like some of my other guests and even my own experience, I can distinctly remember having encountered classical music a little bit as I was growing up, but there was a a really defining moment in my life when I encountered it in a way that changed my course. And you must have had such a moment. And I'd love to go back with you in your memory to that time when you first recognized wow, this music, I have to do this music. I have to be a part of this music. It's not sufficient to enjoy it from a distance. I need to learn how to create it, how to participate in it, and be a part of it, apart from just enjoying it. Sure. No, that
1: is a very, very good question. And I'm, now I'm I'm sort of searching in my mind for what was an epiphany moment where I sort of thought... Um, I don't want to be the audience member necessarily for, for the um, rest of my life. I also want to be someone that sort of, um, I guess engages in the creation of music. And for me, that probably would have been in late high school. I think it was probably around the time that I started to um, realize I could basically buy and uh, have mailed to my doorstep uh, the John Williams signature edition scores. And I think that's probably where my um, I I guess real love for um, studying music also translated into, oh, I actually want to, you know, give this a go myself. This is complex. This is um, unusual. This is a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, no, it would have been probably late high school. But if I was to sort of trace my um, origins, you know, in terms of, I guess, really, really um, wanting to sort of write it, it would have been right back to... um, being a little kid, I actually, would, would have been listening to the um to the soundtracks that that were on CDs around home, and um, recreating the films and the um you know the amazing moments and um I guess familiarizing myself with all of the the sort of the instruments and sounds and combinations of the orchestra and um, yeah, but it's really hard to sort of pinpoint one moment in time where I was like I want to do this. This is really um something that I. Can't see myself not doing. I think that was more of a mindset that evolved over time through exposure, through involvement with bands and and um, orchestras and all that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: So, was there um, when you're online and you're ready to click buy, add to cart, whatever it was for your John Williams scores? There was already a sense of commitment at that moment. You, you'd already realized that this was going beyond a recreational enjoyment or a hobbyist's enjoyment um were you yeah and you were playing in the band at this point
1: i was you know so by this time i'd actually i probably should have mentioned i grew up in new zealand so i didn't move to australia until i was 16 and so in new zealand the um the musical culture is quite different it turns out from from the australian one so in new zealand uh jazz bands brass bands are quite um quite common commonplace in schools quite available to sort of join and um a lot of fun but the sort of the the leg up I guess I sort of experienced moving to Australia was well they actually have symphony orchestras that are sort of um quite active in you know on a community level on a professional level in the um in the country and we also had uh bands, which in terms of um, the, the the amount of colour you would be exposed to, um, different uh, instrumental families, all that sort of stuff, was um, a lot a lot different, a lot more um, extensive than it was in New Zealand, and that was, you yeah, know, that was probably one of the, the propelling things as well. Was that now I can sort of play in a symphonic band, I can I can um, join these these workshops that run every um, every year with one of the state orchestras, and um, the exposure was, was um, very different.
0: So having moved and expanded your, your exposure to the music, uh, it propelled you and, and led you into that moment. And uh, again, for the contemporary age, there's so many music styles. There's so many choices. You could have found your musical expression in any of a number of ways, but for you, it was really the storytelling capability of the orchestra. Was there, and, and then you chose the trumpets, having come a little bit later. How did you land on the trumpet as your entry point?
1: Oh, well, that's a very funny question. And I'm actually quite embarrassed to tell you the real answer, which was that um, I basically needed to engineer a um, conflict between my scheduled weekly uh, taekwondo classes. And uh, it turns out the junior band was running on the same night as this class, which I absolutely hated. And that's why I sort of chose the trumpet. <laughs> So that was probably not exactly what you were um, imagining, but I think, um, I think just having the, the availability to learn any instrument, it, it probably wasn't just trumpet, it would have been violin, you know, um, clarinet, whatever was, would have been available at school, I probably would have wanted to have picked any one of them because I thought they were really cool. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too sophomore. <laughs>
0: No, everybody's story's different. Uh, we all have one. And so for you, landing on the trumpet gave you a new way to start to express and explore this music that you... Um, so as you moved to becoming an instrumentalist, having already decided this was a pursuit, what did you... What were some of your early lessons about the actual production of the sounds as you started to think about orchestration as you started to think about your desire to create this music and here's mastery of a physical instrument now in front of you any any lessons along the way was that in how did that inform your journey
1: that's actually a really good question uh, I, I do have a recollection of um, at one point before rehearsal in our um, school band basically going around the percussion section and trying them all out. And being like well I've heard all of these instruments how do we actually um generate sounds from these you know this this wide variety of instruments and then it was um then it led to a a series of I guess questions to some of my colleagues I I wanted to make inquiries well how does one actually play saxophone how does one you know do this effect Uh, why does you know barry sax for example do a really good walking bass sound And, and all of these sorts of I guess questions would over time sort of um, basically garner some systems in my head about, um, I guess, the expressive capabilities of, of different instruments and, um, and eventually how combining them would create more complex, more, um, I guess, interpretive um, sort of result, uh, which always in- interested me and as yourself a very accomplished orchestrator it's not just the individual sound of the instrument, which I, I think we're enamored with per se, but it's it's how we blend them as if they're different colors on a palette to create new
0: sounds. Ensemble playing certainly gives you that experience and uh and hearing I, I can think in my own experience, when I was studying conducting early early in my studies, I was riveted by usually the conducting students would sit behind the orchestra. So the orchestra that you'd be rehearsing with would be in front, you'd sit in the back, and you'd watch the other student conductors go up and engage the orchestra. And not being a pianist, I never had quite that same ensemble experience. I'd played violin in the school orchestra, but it, it wasn't quite the same to be able to sit, listen with purpose and intent, and not be busily producing sound, but really taking in that 360 surround sound on the stage, immensely intoxicating experience when you realize all of these humans are working in really precise unisons and, and, and synchronicity to make these things happen. There's, it's very different than sitting in the, uh, sitting in the audience. It sounds like perhaps you had a similar experience.
1: Oh, it was, it was definitely the, um, the orchestra workshops, as you mentioned, as if you were a violinist, I was a trumpet player, but basically, um, appreciating from the inside of the clock how all the cogs are interacting and and producing something that is basically one organism but we're all individual parts of that organism which is very fascinating you're right as opposed to being simply an audience member but to actually sort of be in the in the middle and to sort of hear a you know a different sort of um completely different uh, perception of of, um, of a piece, yeah.
0: Yeah, when uh, I've had some opportunities in some of my orchestral uh, performances to give audiences, not many people in the audience get the chance to sit with the ensemble for one of the pieces. And it it's always enriching so that they can have that experience too. It's a It's a rare one, mm-hmm. but a special one for sure. So following that up, as you started to engage these ensembles, you were learning the trumpet, you were learning the sounds of the other instruments in situ as they were around you you knew you were already on this course to explore this music but at some point the normal pressures of, of early life lead you down to some dir- different career choices and trying to navigate your course and you didn't uh, you didn't veer off many people veer off from a practical study for just v- a variety of reasons but you stuck with it did you know where you were going or were you more driven just by the conviction that this was going to be the road
1: well, it's it's funny actually. Um, in in many ways, I think I guess creatively. I, I mean, I I completed my bachelor's of um, composition at Melbourne University in um, 2016, and I felt that for some reason I was creatively at a bit of a at a bit of a dead end. I mean, I still had you know all of the training that that the um that the bachelor had provided, but um, for me, it was lacking something, and I think I realised that I was not enjoying the fact that I couldn't fully produce my own music. I wasn't able. I, I mean, I could do, you know, I guess, fair the Bayless mock-ups, but the um, it just, you know, it didn't quite have the same, you know, veracity as as um as the real thing. Of course, as you sort of get more and more further into your discipline, you you start to sort of know what you don't know, and in, in this case, it was that um. Hmm. this isn't sounding quite as good as I would like and it was around that sort of point where I was making you know friends from other universities uh, where they were basically getting taught a whole side of music that um, was basically you know hidden in the shadows in, the, in, in a classical upbringing and I, I don't know if it would have been any different for you when you were doing your studies Gustav but for us in Melbourne Uni it was um very much pen paper um scores the the idea was tantamount not the actual you know result and so um music production basically as a concept as a uh, as a discipline was was not even sort of touched on and I, I think I realized very soon that this is actually what I want to do. It's not just writing, but it's also learning to, to produce. And I, I think I um, <laughs> it would have been about 2017 or something um, just after my, my graduation, that I got onto my first DAW for anyone in the audience who doesn't know a DAW is a um, digital audio workstation. And that's basically the main software that's employed, you know, throughout the industry now. Um, to to um, produce mix um, arrange music and and more predominantly now than ever actually compose music in these um in these very complex software so that's basically been the second um, journey for me has been to sort of undertake a um, career towards production as well as classical composition
0: yeah so that picks up a an interesting thread for me I'd love to have you elaborate on the journey of being a composer when I was a a student, there were no DAWs, there was no uh, synthetic music, there were synthesizers. So there was electronic music, but that was um, mostly for popular music, or it was uh, sort of a fringe universe of the composition course. And it was very technical. And uh, one of the experiences I had, I needed to uh, learn some of those tools and and I, I have uh, modest skills at best because it's a, it's a massive body of knowledge in its own right. Talk to me a little bit about how you would, how that body of knowledge, one, how, how you came to, to get it and how it has complemented your own creative work. Did it bring you what you hoped it would, namely the ability to produce in sound waves the ideas that you would normally have just written on paper?
1: That's a very good question. Um, and it's an ongoing process. It's a very, I think it's at points defeating process because what you wrote two weeks ago and produced is going to not sound as good as what you're doing today. So there's that constant running buffer of uh, dissatisfaction. Yeah. So there's that constant sort of stream of producing, I guess, mock ups, um, pieces, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, because nothing, obviously, is quite as good as the as the real orchestra, the real ensemble. That the human touch is um, unfortunately better than anything that myself or anyone else can program. But um, there is a, a huge satisfaction in being able to to you know increasingly produce more and more convincing um, performances. I like to call them. I I like to use the word performance in the sense is that that is essentially what I'm trying to do with the technology available is to program performances because the, um, I think the level of, um, integrity that, that sound libraries are bringing to the idea of performance, the idea of, um, of artistry with sound libraries, you know, with samples now is, um, is, is quite incredible. It's actually unbelievable. And I think you would probably, um, agree with this firsthand that the, um, the, the level that, that um, we can produce convincing recordings now is um, very impressive.
0: It is. Well, and for those uh, listening to the podcast, the connection that we had was initially your help producing a digital-only performance of a symphony that I had created. And I knew that I wanted, um, I wanted a good uh, simulation of what the orchestral final result would be. And having trained composers in our tradition, understand the mechanics of music making, but it's still um, unconsummated until you hear it at least in an approximate form in its orchestral clothing and all of the nuances and the subtleties. And so, through a, a mutual friend, I, we were able to connect, and you did absolutely lovely work. And I'll be sharing that uh, with the podcast at some point and hopefully recording it live. But what I have from your handiwork is a very convincing and real sounding and it can never f- replace the orchestra but, but it's fantastic and actually I'd love to elaborate on that a little bit because it is a performance and you and I discussed it. You are in effect a conductor or an interpreter of the music. I, I gave you MIDI which is generic instructions for computer but it it really that's just the crudest beginning. That's the skeleton of what finally comes to pass. Talk a little bit about that and then Uh, and 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 that'll talk about the technical side and then let's extend it and maybe talk about how that informs your own creative work as a composer
1: sure now that's quite a lot to unpack actually so I think um first point that's very um very humbling of you to say that um that it is as good as as you say it is and um but at the end of the day, I am just an artist who basically uses the technology that's available, and hopefully as expertly as um, as I can. But um, so basically, performance as a um, I guess if you think of a performance in terms of a grid-like structure, in terms of intensity and and um, and pitch and vibrato and all of these other sort of parameters that can sort of be combined to um, create what's, you know we sort of would assume to be a real sounding performance is all um, completely programmable now. And so this is something that um, 10 years ago, we couldn't, uh, 15 years ago, we couldn't bring to the table in terms of our markups. And we will notice this, I think, um, for anyone who has uh, tried using sound libraries or um, any of that sort of technology from 15 years ago, we'll be able to relate that it has come you know, leaps and bounds in terms of the uh, control. I think artists, um, conductors, you know, digital conductors such as myself, now um, now sort of have at their fingertips. Um,
0: yeah. So let me, so, uh, let me yeah. pause you there. Sorry, because I think you and I are speaking with a high level of knowledge, but not everybody listening to the podcast will necessarily track what you just said. And so, yeah, talk a, a little <laughs> bit about how is it that these tools are better? Uh, The audience will have heard synthetic sounds and samples, and I'll I'll just uh, give a quick pricey. A sample is essentially if you asked uh, an instrument to record a single pitch, and you record that pitch, and then you put it so that when you hit a certain keyboard note, that pitch sounds. At its most simple, a sample is, it's not a fake sound, it's a really it's a live recorded sound. It's just a that's slice cool. of a big fabric. And so these sample libraries have been used for a while. You, people hear them all the time. So from that point of departure, these are real players making real sounds. But talk about that evolution. How is it that, if that's true, if they were doing that 15 years ago, what's changing? How are they improving?
1: Sure. No, and that's a very good point you brought up with Um, For those who don't know, sample libraries are the results of real players in real recording situations, and um, through Engineering Genius, these um, many thousand little recordings that we call samples have been arranged into these very complex um, audio engines that basically respond to certain programming directives, and these are things that, um, without going into too much technical... Techno babble. We have um, certain parameters called modulation, velocity, um, uh, and and other MIDI controllers that that will, in in some way, change the way that um, certain samples are triggered, or sustained, or released, or attacked, or anything like this. It's all part of a very complex um, sort of sound modeling um, generation that we live in now. Where where orchestral recordings can be applied into um, very, you know, successfully into very organic sounding um, performances, yeah. But it's, it, that is a very good point that you brought up. They are all real recordings. These are real um, performers, professionals all over the world that are basically being sampled um, for days, potentially weeks, depending on um, how much they've uh, sort of got to get through but basically they will take, for example, a string section if they wanted to record, um, I don't know, the, the. can you think of a good orchestra? Probably the Hollywood symphony strings, for example, cause that is one library I can think of. Um, and they will basically put two days aside to do all of the short articulations. And when I say short articulations, these are um, sounds, uh spiccato micado you know pizzicato col all of these techniques and these are what we would call one shot they would basically be a sample that is activated at a at a certain velocity or intensity and then it basically fades away naturally and that's different from the other ones which as everyone might, might imagine are the long articulations the sustaining sounds that um, you'd expect to hear from a string orchestra tremolo, normal Arco um, harmonics all of these you know other articulations and basically what they've done is incredible for the whole orchestra now every single articulation within you know sort of popular demand has been um, basically recorded and formatted in these audio engines so that um, people like me uh, with my computer can basically, create you know very dynamic and versatile performances for, for what would be something requiring a hundred people is now one person in a computer obviously no, no substitution to the real real deal but I think as, as far as a, um, a good um, representation of the orchestral sound of the piece itself it's um, it's as good as it ever has been and I really love that phrase you used before. Orchestral clothes on the on the midi, which is quite quaint I like that a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as you do that, if it's true that these are really uh, these are real performances, real just micro slices of real humans making sound, is it just as simple as um, picking the sounds, or or let me put it differently: where where is the technical or the artistic element? that's required from you beyond, obviously, the right notes have to sound at the right time, and, and a computer could say, oh, these are short, so we give it the short sounds. So uh, what I have learned and I observed in your work is there's a tremendous artistry. It's not just simply a technical craft. Uh, talk a little bit about that. what do you, How do you make those things that are already human recordings, uh, but if you heard them, they don't they don't sound natural. And that's something everybody would notice. If it's just out of the box, they don't sound natural. So how do you help them sound more natural? Well,
1: you're absolutely right. And that's the thing. As much as these are real people recording real long and short notes, um, it's very easy to make an orchestral markup sound um, inhuman or um, not convincing in terms of um, its human aspects. And I think for me, that is where the role of the composer is to, to basically assemble a lot of programming that basically produces a result that is musical in nature and and that basically is is something that um is the result of a very saturated upbringing of listening to um orchestral recordings and and sort of knowing understanding I guess the balance of different parts the weight of different sections knowing how far or how far forward or back that, you know, different members of the orchestra would be. For example, that the, the um, percussion section will often be heard very reverbed, very um, dulled compared to the rest of the orchestra in recordings. And that's because traditionally as an audience member, the detail will often shine through the um, sort of crispness of the violin section and cello because they're at the front of the room. And the, um, and the percussion are at the back. So it's, it's considerations like this that we um, consciously sort of implement when we're creating, you know, and mixing, producing a, um, an orchestral mock-up is, is, is sort of what are people already used to hearing in terms of um, the orchestra because most of the world has not actually heard an orchestra live. They have heard an orchestra through, you know, through the magic of re- recording. And I think um, that balance is actually something that's been explored and, and, uh, you know, developed over, over many decades now. And I I think it's at a point just in terms of recording the real deal, it's, 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 it's down to an art form basically. And if we can, you know, implement that in terms of how we, you know, treat the sample wells there, there is going to be a very happy sort of balance between the real thing and the, um, the, uh, the ersatz thing, I should say the the, the imitation. So <laughs> I hope that answers some questions. It's, um, but it's considerations like that that are, that are really important with, um, with uh, working in the digital world as opposed to the, to the real one.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a lot that could be said, but you touched on many elements. And to me, the, the big takeaway is, even if it's digitally recorded, to make a, a living performance, it still takes a human touch. A non-algorithmic touch. You can't. uh, You can't just push a button and a computer produces something that sounds natural. It just, even if they're natural sounds, they'll be unnaturally put together unless a human being comes along and shapes it.
1: Absolutely, and that's and these are very true things as well, Gustav. In the real world, orchestral musicians, even the tightest players in the world, will not be all quantized to one grid line. There is that basic randomness, I think, even to the you know smallest scent that that makes an orchestra sound organic, sound real, because you know there is human error, he, ever so small, that that um, that makes a piece sound real for whatever reason, and that's it's kind of the the hard bridge to cross in terms of uncanny valley is is making something sound random so I mean that's been one of my biggest um, sort of investigative uh, journeys has been trying to uh, explore randomness as a concept in terms of programming how do we sort of achieve randomness and, um, and it can be as simple as moving um, where samples trigger around a bar line which is a very effective way of um, producing a bit of a, a scattered effect. Um, and then there's more complex ways in terms of um, shaping you know a string section f- 50 Players potentially to instead of sounding like one um, sort of organism moving up and down uniformly, there's um, a whole lot of layering which would be involved with other string libraries samples to sort of um, create that more random effects that that one would expect from strings.
0: So with all that in, in scope now, you have this um, very rich technical capability that you apply artfully. That that's the the craft of making the recordings that become the sound waves how do you use those tools in your own creative work then when you're composing a piece by your own admission you you were trained on the paper and pen method which is what's been used by composers since notation exists all the way back to uh, Guido d'Arezzo and and Neumes yeah. and the long multi-century history of how we write what are really instructions and and this is a uh, Six. This is something that's important when I have had the opportunity to teach younger composers, is to point out, because I had to learn it, the dots on the page are not music. They're instructions on how to produce music. Right, music exactly is vibrations. Right. And so now you have this whole right. new tool where you don't even need to put dots on a page anymore. You can now create directly into sound waves. Talk a bit about your creative process with this skill that you have.
1: Well, this actually might be a really good opportunity to segue into um, a little discussion about something I'm working on currently, which is a um, children's ballet um, that I've titled The Winter Palace. It's uh, inspired by uh, Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. And that was basically the music in that that, um, ballet. It's a suite currently. It's not the full ballet, but it's um, work in progress, was basically the result of reverse engineering what you've just said which is I created the mock-up first for foremost and um the score is 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 the result that basically would come after the mock-up and I think um there might there may be some you know very staunch um opposes to that method as in um the, the vision should be in the notes first and then the um the playback should be you know I guess the uh, the results of of that but I, I I do believe just due to the fact that I didn't start on, uh, you know, DAWs that I sort of did learn, I guess, the uh, the conventional way of studying notes that it, it um, I guess I trust my instincts now when it comes to writing a mock-up that it will translate, you know, well into, you know, score pen and paper orchestration. So that um, is often how I work now is, is, the reverse of what you would do, Gustave, where you would sort of write a, a score and finale and then, and then the audio would, would come as the result of that. So it's just a very different way of working.
0: And a brief editorial interjection. Let's take a listen to the prologue to Hamish's ballet, The Winter Palace. And you'll hear he has used the approach he just described working from samples and using his uh, capabilities there to create this work. Having trained on paper, you spend a lot of time learning about the abstract frameworks that define the Western music tradition, things like harmony, things like chord progressions, keys, uh, these certain structural things, phrases that are are truly abstractions. They're descriptions of the way sound affects us. And we've systematized them as music theory. And so you learn what that looks like on paper. Then, when you suddenly go to the keyboard or whatever you're, however you're producing sounds with your digital audio workstation, you're now your creative impulse isn't coming principally through that intellectual filter; it's coming through uh, an auditory one. How was that transition? Talk about that.
1: Oh, well, that's a very good, very good um, topic and. I'm, I will say that um, there is a danger with using um, sample libraries as the compositional framework, as in the thing that informs the decisions you make compositionally uh, samples lie, Uh, And it's very easy to be deceived about the, um, the strength of different lines based on how you've mixed them as opposed to how those, you know, organic interactions would um, actually, you know, sort of, perpetuate in a, in a real life situation so things like strings that will sound you know f- fat and rich and um, very brilliant in your um, in your sequencer in real life will be easily overcome by trumpets that you've you know quite conveniently mixed down so th- things like that are very you know very important that um, a lot of people forget that, 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 the, that the sequencer is it should not be the tool that basically allows you to compose it should be the tool that basically allows your composition to be heard. So I never used, I, I would sort of um, be very um, careful about sort of relying too heavily on the balance that, that um, different samples would tell you and um, the weight and all that sort of stuff. So if I was to sort of retroactively extract a score um, from a mock up, it, it would basically be, you know, very very critical about how I've actually written it out in the, in the program. So all the doublings, all the, um, the dynamics would basically have to be, you know, very, you know, carefully sort of reviewed and, um, and, uh, sort of, I guess criticized in terms of compared to what the computer's telling me. Yeah.
0: If we have these tools and you know that they aren't constrained by physical acoustics and you have a sound you love with the samples, um, does it matter that it could never be naturally reproduced by uh, living players?
1: Well, it depends what world you're um, referring to. In, in a classical sense, that would be a bit of a problem. But I think increasingly more and more, and this is my, I guess, my other, the other side of my duality is um, in commercial music, it is not uncommon for sampled sounds and live players to basically interact in the same final mix. Uh, more and more uh, string libraries, brass libraries, are actually used to layer live recordings to to, to bolster them artificially. Um, and often, if it's if it's a sampled effect that you you fallen in love with, um, it it can remain in the final um, in the final cut of a film story piece of advertising. So it it, it entirely depends, you know, in the um, in, in which context you would be working. But if it's purely acoustic, then that is a consideration that, that, that might you know re- yield unfavorable results.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned the commercial music, and what it calls to mind, if any of the listeners, and you've heard this, Hamish, uh, an operatically trained singer has been coached and taught how to fill a giant room with just the natural organic sound that their body can produce with no extra amplification. Suddenly, with the arrival of the gramophone and the microphone, you hear singing styles start to appear and evolve very radically, where now you have vocalists whose, whose strength and training would never fill a room. In fact, they could sing in the room and you'd barely hear them. But when you bring a mic up close, it's suddenly as if you're hearing music in a way you would never hear it, which is directly in front of their face. That microphone can capture, Absolutely. and it makes, I'm reminded of that as you talk about these orchestral instruments. And so we know in voice that has, that mic technique, microphone technique, is a thing singers think a lot about. How do they use the microphone as part of their mode of expression? They don't sing or, just acoustically anymore. Um, do you see that happening with the orchestral instruments in the orchestral tradition?
1: Absolutely. Um, And that is a really um, interesting um, sort of evolution. You've touched on there with the the event, the, uh, I guess, development of recording technology, which as time has progressed, has become more and more clean, crystal clear. There's been, um, you know, you go through the 1970s with the um, age of analog tape saturation and suddenly the amount of high-end information that can be recorded is, um, substantial. And that's exactly the same as with singers is um, something that has sort of perpetuated into, you know, orchestral recording and, and it's very different, you know, from from industry to industry. And I've noticed this with uh, different Sorts of film scores for ones that are um, of you know a Hollywood blockbuster that intimacy is lost you know for the um, I guess for spectacle for for largeness for huge re, you know room reverbs um, everything sounds big but you lose that intimacy whereas in Britain with um, period dramas it's um, the recording technique is much more intimate the the microphones are right up next to the the violinists. You can hear the individual rosin and sounds of, of players. And, um, and you probably wouldn't hear that in real life, like you say, unless you were the microphone, you were the ear that was right next to the violin. So the, these, are very, these are very good points, Gustav, these um, considerations, I guess. And, and, and it has changed a lot of, you know, of how we sort of experience orchestral um, performance. As to whether or not that affects the um, the way that players would play now, as you say, the operatic singer would project and fill up a room, whereas a you know pop singer now would be just needing to sound you know good to the microphone, which is you know seven inches in front of them. I don't know. I don't know. That would be a really good um, a really good question for some of my orchestral friends. Do you play differently? if you know you're being recorded versus if you're in you know, um, Carnegie Hall and there are no, no microphones, basically.
0: <laughs> what do you think? It's a great question. I think what you described, a close-miked fiddle violin is gonna pick up noise artifacts that are natural to the instrument, but if you were in a, in a live music setting, you'd never hear it. So the audience would never hear some of the scratching and the popping and the squeaking that's part of a, a violin. Um, and good violinists learn how to attenuate that. If, if you've ever heard an amateur or beginning violinist, you hear all of that. But it's still always there, and um, close microphones will, will they betray that, that sound you would never hear naturally. I think it's a, to me, the question that comes to mind, and the reason I ask, Hamish, as a younger composer than I am, and and you're... Runway will, will carry long after I'm done writing. How will the idea of orchestral music evolve knowing that one, it's, it's immensely expensive to produce with live people. Mm-hmm. Two, you have sample libraries and technologies that have come so far. They, they've basically micro-sampled so many of the subtleties and the inflections of a live performer that you can now program in a way that you mix and match those to give it a a naturalistic sound. And then at what point, and this is my next question comp creatively too, do you envision yourself using purely synthetic sounds? Because that's what the creative moment requires, that you say, okay, I've now moved beyond what the acoustical orchestra instruments can do. Now there's this whole other thing. Um, Talk to me a bit about that process for you, how you think those things through.
1: Sure, well, I would liken the, the first point to sort of driving a combustion engine car. I feel like my convenience is perhaps coming at the expense of the environment. I think in the same way it is my convenience, you know, at, at the computer sort of creating these mock-ups, maybe in some way bankrupting, you know, the, the future of the orchestra in terms of, I guess it's commercial viability, because as you touched on, it can cost many, many thousands, tens of thousands of dollars for a recording session, um, and the the best orchestras in the world are um, so prohibitive that that um, they, we are now, you know, if we do even sort of come close to having the amount of money required to record a real orchestra, we would have to sort of approach um, orchestras like the City of Prague Philharmonic, the Budapest um, Symphony Orchestras, uh, just to basically get in the front door and get music in front of players. Which is sad. It's it's sad, but it's not really a surprise because uh, players have to eat, um, conductors have to eat, and, and orchestras are expensive, and um, they rely on on these um, on these these patrons, uh, mostly the film industry now, to to um, to to basically continue and not run on a loss. Um, but the you know, for 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 normal soundtracks now I think it's it's not uncommon to hear something that is completely synthetic and by that I mean samples or synthesized sounds with no live recording um and uh yeah but that's just because mixing has, has has also come so far it's 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 um, possible now to to produce something as I would to, but to to the level where you would not be able to 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 tell in the in this diegesis I guess of a film Um, As for my own take, I'm like you. I would always much prefer the opportunity to work with real musicians. I think that that human touch is um, irreplaceable. It's not something that can be substituted or imitated to a level where um, it, you know, it sort of makes the orchestra obsolete or or players in general. But um, but no, I, I don't see myself going towards purely synthetic sounds, if anything, I would like to sort of see myself as one of the, um, I, I guess the minority of um, composers in my generation that would like to sort of continue um, into the foreseeable future in a career with a live orchestra and live players. I mean, I think that's what everyone as a composer, I think that's the, the greatest honor is not receiving an award or money is, is the opportunity to hear one of their works you know, basically labored over by these, you know, some of the best players in the world and um, brought to life, literally. So, I mean, as, as great as computers are and as, as fun as, you know, as they are to sort of, and satisfying, I think, is probably a good word to describe the, the, the feeling of being able to get close to the, to the real deal. I don't, I don't think that anytime soon it will be, you know, something that will make the orchestra disappear. I'm I'm very much hoping that's the case. I don't think I don't think that will be a probability, likelihood anytime soon. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that uh, kind of dovetails with my next question for you, which is: as you're looking out on your creative future, and uh, many wonderful works lie in your future, I'm certain, and I'll look forward to hearing them you. Uh, as Welcome. you. As you walk down that road, how audiences and how other human beings will encounter your music will change. Some will hear it, most through recordings now. To your point, most people don't hear a live orchestra. So when you're thinking about your work as an artist, as, because you've chosen the vocabulary of the European orchestral tradition as, as your, your starting point. It's like being an oil painter, uh, in a sense. It's, it's a long-storied tradition that takes tremendous skill. It takes a lot of labor and um as you bring your creative voice to the world what what would be your ideal channel is it through cinematic work that was an early inspiration for you would you would you like to and not that it has to be one to the total exclusion of others but there's going to be an area where you'll focus your creative work your most authentic voice
1: absolutely and i would say it would be through film i feel that um, the style of uh, very colourful sort of John Williams inspired uh, writing idiom that that I would sort of most closely associate myself with is um, doesn't really have much of a presence in the concert world now which is very sad to me Um, and and it's got less of a a presence in the film world as well but I think um, that really vibrant sort of colourful expressive you know, entertaining style of orchestral music is becoming harder and harder to, you know, even as a film composer get the opportunity to write. But um, I'm I'm always overjoyed when I get the opportunity to hear a new score that has been written by a um, current film composer that that basically harkens back to that golden age of, um, you know, orchestral sort of brilliance and um, descriptive writing and very clever technique and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I think from a from a career point of view I think the film industry does um bear a lot of fruits it is a very competitive field to sort of succeed in but um it can be rewarding creatively you know financially for many and my my other venture is 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 purely in the commercial music uh venture as well which for for those who don't know there's a um, big company called Bonnet Chapel and they write but basically produce a, a lot of music for uh for commercials for trailers for um, documentaries it's it's basically licensed library music and they're actually um doing some incredible stuff as well which is also bringing live musicians into the fold and um bringing composers and live musicians together and um obviously stylistically that's different again from film music it has its own conventions but i think any medium where i can sort of see myself in a um in a career where I'm working, you know, with live performers is going to be, you know, fantastic. And I'll basically have to apply myself to sort of deliver what the the project brief is for um, each and every scenario that sort of arises.
0: Yeah. So as we uh, wrap up just a, a couple of more questions about you and, and your journey as a young composer. And uh, that's with all the uncertainty you mentioned when you have an opportunity for your music to be encountered by another human being. Well, is there anything you'd want them to know about you or about the music? What, what's important in your thinking that would help a listener who hadn't heard your music and maybe wasn't even familiar with this tradition? What would you want them to know going into it that might help them navigate what they're hearing? Sure. Well, I
1: should probably say that from the offset, I don't think my name would be important so much as that I would hope that um, that music would impart something of value to them in their day, even if it's, you know, fleeting and immediately forgotten, which I'm hoping is not the case, but for its runtime, I, I would hope that, that some emotional um, sort of integrity would be imparted with the listener. So, and, and my intention as well, I guess, as a composer, we, we write not just for ourselves, but hoping that, you know, People, our audience, will respond in a in a certain way that 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 we in writing have responded to. You know the 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 ideas in our head, and um, I mean that that's always been really important to me. Like, does my music say something about you know about about the human condition, about uh, you know emotions ranging from um, excited to 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 sad to melancholic to you know um, very complex array of of, um, feelings that one could sort of extrapolate from from listening to a piece of music basically, yeah. So that to me is, yeah, that's probably the most important thing to me is um, basically, yeah, just saying something that that makes someone feel something. (laughs) Because I I think, yeah, I I grew up, um, well, I didn't grow up, I obviously studied at the university and I found that um, there was a, a, a basic, Need to disassociate human emotion from from music to to not say anything overt to not um, to not give audiences a feeling of place and time and and for me I, I think that goes against the very sort of nature of what music is which is to emotionally elevate to um, to to basically speak to a part of the brain we don't completely understand that um, gives us you know emotions and all that sort of stuff yeah.
0: Very well said. Quite compelling. What are some projects you have on the horizon that you're really excited about? Things we can be looking out for?
1: Sure. Well, I mentioned this um, this ballet, which obviously ballets, you know, like any any sort of multimedia production, can take many years to sort of um, eventuate. But um, the most likely place that someone, you know, that a member of the public would hear me would be through. Um, through, through through commercial music, music that has been sort of written tailored for you know the use on on documentaries on on uh, certain advertisements, on trailers, all that sort of stuff um, is a very good uh, sort of passage, I think, to sort of touch touch the masses. Um.
0: And another editorial interjection, let's take a listen to what that commercial music sounds like. This is a track called Allegory that uh, Hamish produced for that purpose for the use in commercial libraries.
1: I do have a sort of career in, in film on, on the horizon. I think that will sort of um, gain a bit more momentum the further, because obviously I'm doing this all remotely. This is all um, from from my studio in Australia, which um, as we met uh, was over Zoom Connections and I think I'm probably just as proficient at- reaching people on zoom these days as I am actually with anything musically related, but um, but uh, so as long as that can continues, then um, who's to say where, you know, where opportunities will lead. I had no idea we would be having this conversation a year ago, but here we are. And I couldn't be more delighted.
0: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure and uh, certainly excited to watch your career, your creativity and uh, on the show. By this point, we will have already heard some of your music. I'll I'll bring some of that music in. And uh, I will look forward to sharing with the Anachronism audience over time as new projects come around, things you're excited about. Uh, I hope we could invite you back and we can follow your journey as you find your voice in the world and bring that voice. And like you said, reach people emotionally and impart on uh, something human to them. That's a lovely sentiment.
1: And I'd love to be back as well. And this is quite a, um, I guess, exciting uh, event for me in my, in my career so far. I've never actually been on the podcast. So I'm I'm hoping this time I haven't sort of rambled too long. But uh, I think this is what these talks are all about, is to just have a chat and um, let the guest basically have at it. So hopefully I've imparted some wisdom on on my uh, career and my, I guess, my special area of expertise and um yes that's no, been an absolute pleasure and um thank you so much for having me on today good stuff
0: yeah it was my pleasure hamish thank you and uh with that we'll let you go back to your work thank you for being on uh it was a thank pleasure you
1: so thank you everyone take care
0: i hope you enjoyed my conversation with composer hamish ander as you can hear he's talented and on to great things, and I look forward to hearing and sharing more about his progress in the years to come. As always, thank you for listening to the Anachronism Podcast. If you enjoy this material, please reach out to me on Facebook, through my website, and let me know topics of interest to you. I endeavor to bring interesting guests and illuminating conversation to help you understand the world of classical music. Thanks for being on this journey with me, And I look forward to having you join me for my next episode.